Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sailing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my pretty partner, Ravinder, and her lovely chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. I do love that chat room, and we have some truly great folks that join us each week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We have the loveliest chat room. It's a wonderful group of people, and uh, the conversation is often very lively and definitely contributes to whatever subject it is we're discussing on the air and some other subjects too. So if you have a question that you want to ask, come into the chat room. You know, if we can get it on the air, we will. But if not, there'll be someone in the chat room offering their pearls of wisdom too. So come to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In today's spotlight, we once again turn our attention to the virulent nature of lies and propaganda in our politics and media. As Americans, we pride ourselves on free speech and freedom of the press. But for many, this pride is misplaced. How much pride is there when we discover that a prominent politician knowingly and deliberately lied about another politician and did so on separate occasions to both the press and on the floor of the Senate? Further, when asked about the lie, he boasts, well, he didn't win the election, did he? This is Senator Harry Reid admitting to CNN reporter Dana Bash that he not only intentionally lied about Mitt Romney when he stated that Romney had not paid taxes for 12 years, but he had no regrets doing so. At the time, every form of media reported Reid's lies as though they were fact, and the American voter trusted the press and then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Did this influence the outcome of the election? Well, Reed, for one, thinks so. Now, what kind of confidence does that inspire? So what's new about politicians lying to the public? I mean, we have monumental lies from politicians throughout history. Supposedly, the truth can set you free. But for many, deceit holds the key to money, fame, revenge, or power, and these prove all too tempting. In history, this has often resulted in elaborate hoaxes, perjuries, and forgeries that had enormous ripple effects. It seems today that we are lied to about almost everything. We went to school to learn that Edison invented the light bulb, but he didn't. We were taught that Columbus discovered America and figured out that the world was round, and this is also entirely false. And there is so much more. But moving on, today we are lied to about GMOs. We are lied to about vaccines. Even our respected news commentators make up stuff. Just make it up. Like Brian Williams fabricating a story about his involvement in a firefight. Or Bill O'Reilly making up a similar war story involving the Civil War in El Salvador. The fact is, today our news is as manufactured as Nabisco crackers 
and just as alike. The sound bites go out everywhere, and when the retraction or correction is made, well, it is basically ignored. Indeed, I have spent the last three years compiling the data and the latest psychological research, and it strongly suggests that once the lie is told and repeated, it sticks, regardless of later refutations. So, the media goes for whatever it takes to capture the audience, and that is generally something sensational. Lies make for good copy, and that attracts audiences. And it can become absolutely ludicrous, such as when NBC reported a prank story about a naked man escaping from a window at Buckingham Palace. NBC was apparently unaware that the pre-planned stunt was part of a scene for a drama show on its own network. And once they picked it up as a real story, well, it went viral. Sorting out the truth from the fiction nowadays is no easy task, but it is an essential one if we are to be informed and remain a free people. For under the ruse of this or that, our freedoms not only become corrupt, but may cease to exist. There is an interesting corollary to the loss of freedom and the loss of our spirituality, at least the free practice of our spirituality. Because the fact is, historically, the two are hand in glove. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, the whole story about lies. You know, I'm still back on your stuff about um, Harry Reid and whatever, because we vote based on the information that we have. And when someone as high up as he is, you know, tells a blatant lie like that. And one of the things that I came across when I was reading your book on Sheeple, They've actually done research that shows that even when it has been proven to be a lie, it doesn't make a difference to someone's opinion. So they've taken the first tidbit of information and that sticks. And it doesn't matter what the source is to have, you know, have that proven incorrect. It doesn't change stuff. And I think that is so scary. Yeah, that's another issue, sheeple. You know, we... uh We learned today that uh, one of the sticking points, quote from a publisher, is, I love the book, it's right on, needs to be said, but he's going to get his pants suit off for saying it. Frivolous suits, but they don't want it told. What do you think of that one? Well, that is definitely a tactic we are aware of. I mean, there are certain big personalities who have been just harassed with frivolous suits in order to shut them up. So, yeah, it's scary, actually. I guess we'll see. Stay tuned on that, because the book is coming. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you, while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week we enjoyed a conversation with Brenda Michaels. Sean wrote, Brenda's story of courage is bold indeed. I don't know if I could have done what she did and dropped my doctors. But shows like this one tell a story that's important to hear. Thank you both for a great show. Tony wrote, great show with Brenda Michaels. I love her take on being positive. I have been practicing your I can't wait to see what good comes from this approach since reading your book, Choices and Illusions. It really works. CB commented, 
I find it a sad state of affairs with how huge a population in the U.S. is taking some kind of legal prescribed mood-altering drug when the idea of changing one's own brain chemistry by altering their mental focus is scoffed at. When someone says that is Pollyannish, I tell them that Dr. Pollyanna has a lot of research behind her. You should check it out. I like that one. That's a great one. David wrote, your company and products have had a profound influence on my life since I started using your creations several years ago. The changes I've experienced have been beyond anything I could have hoped for, and I appreciate your constant customer service. Edward wrote, Dear Dr. Taylor, your Intertalk technology is the only one that works out there in the self-help industry. There isn't any other reliable alternative out there. Well, thank you, Edward. That's our opinion as well. And what's more, it's literally, literally what the independent research concludes. And Gladwin wrote, I am honored to be taking a part in spreading the knowledge about Intertalk. Intertalk is changing my life so much. This is my opportunity to help inspire other people into experiencing that wonderful change. Thank you and your team once again. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support, don't we, Ravinder? Yes, we do. I read all of your emails, and I answer them as well, so please keep them coming. Now to this week's show. Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential with Dr. Christina Donnell. Okay, what exactly is transcendent dreaming? The naysayers are quick to debunk the notion as a new age piece of nonsense, the main goal of which, they say, is to make one feel more important. In other words... It's as if feeling good about oneself via a sense of connection to something higher um, is wrong. I mean, it's wrong to be feeling good about oneself. Well, I mean, according to some skeptics, that makes no sense whatsoever to me. What's really nonsense is the notion that feeling good about oneself is nonsense. (laughs) I mean, but no. These are the same skeptics that would argue there is no such thing as a divine, a life after death, or for that matter, anything more than the reductionistic, materialistic view that they hold. One of the things I find amusing about this perspective, though, is the religious fervor by which this breed of scientism attacks religious fervor. It's more than ironical to me. It's just downright ludicrous. So we return to the question, what is transcendent dreaming? Is this some form of lucid dreaming designed to emulate an out-of-body experience? Is this just another form of daydreaming? I mean, even the skeptics are aware that we can all have dreams where we become aware that we are dreaming, but they argue this is not some special state. They insist that self-awareness resides in the prefrontal cortex, which shows reduced activity during sleep. So they argue, when the prefrontal cortex is active, we are no longer asleep. Does that make sense? Well, we'll see what our guest has to say about that today. Dr. Christina Donald's copy reads, and I quote, Since writing Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential, the question most often asked worldwide has been, if one is not a dreamer, 
how does one experience non-local, precognitive, expanded states of awareness? The quote goes on. Christina's message is her answer to the question asked by so many, and it is an invitation to join her in exploring together how deeper states of being, becoming a creative, transforming force, while allowing us to discover our own boundlessness. Okay, Christina Donald, Ph.D., classically trained as a clinical psychologist, is a prophetic dreamer and spiritual teacher. She has spent over two two decades studying meditation and working with the shamans and sorcerers of the high Andes of Peru, learning the indigenous master subtle energy realm practices. In her multiple award-winning book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential, she chronicles quantum states of consciousness in which the unseen emerges into our visible world through our human nature. As director of the Winds of Change Association, an educational organization dedicated to offering programs that reawaken the human spirit and potential, Christina maintains a consultation practice, is a keynote speaker, gives public lectures, and conducts intensive retreats. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Christina Donnell. So. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Dr. Donnell, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. I do. Beautiful. You heard the setup piece. Are the skeptics right when they argue that we no longer are sleeping when our prefrontal cortex becomes active? Well, that is not the language that I speak, but what I can say um, from my experience is that I spend the majority of my sleeping time witnessing myself sleep. So I'm lucidly awake witnessing sleep. If that means my prefrontal cortex is active, so be it. If it doesn't, well, let's research it further then. Matters not, right? Okay, well, let's do this. Dr. Donald, we like to establish three things in our interviews. Who is the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin by having you tell us about yourself. What were you like as a youngster? What did you want to be when you grow up? And um, have you fulfilled those childhood ambitions, redefined them, or forgotten all about them? Oh, what was I like as a child? You know what? I was probably a dreamer coming onto the planet. Um, I grew up in southern Michigan, in Detroit, uh, and then uh, later in my childhood moved to uh, another place in southern Michigan where I was on a 40-acre hobby farm. But I recall very early on, uh, and, and I think I... I mean, I've mentioned it in the book, um, going to bed at night, flying in my dreams, and also coming back into our everyday world with information that came from the dream time. For example, in first grade when we were learning our handwriting, I wrote my first six-page book, and it was on African-American spirituals. And uh, because I lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, both the teacher and my parents wondered how I had access to all of African-American spiritual, and it seemed normal to me that when I would go to bed at night, I ended up on the lap of this black, black 
woman with tendrils breast sitting while she was singing African American spirituals, and I could just feel through the cellular nature of my body those rhythms. And I would come back with the lyrics. So very early on, um, you know, sometimes I say perhaps it's a, a prototype of consciousness, which is an anomaly, um, to get information in that manner. But I thought it was normal. And I thought it was normal up until maybe my early 20s when I realized everyone else was not really having these experiences. Interesting. Now, so at this young age, did you decide, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go off and be a dreamer? Or, I mean, uh, did you have, I mean, I, you're having the dreams, but what was your ambition? What what was it you wanted to be when when you matured? You know, I always uh, have been fascinated by human behavior. And I was an anthropology and a psychology major uh, and then decided uh, really just to pursue you know, my advanced degree in psychology because of my interest in human behavior. So, but I also, as a, as a young girl and young woman, was an elite athlete. So, I, you know, I was very much involved in school and, um, uh, and quite athletic. When I look back on it now, I think I was just learning how to wield a physical body. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you would you say that you were raised in a religious uh, environment, a uh, spiritual environment, or how were you predisposed that way as a youth? I would say I grew up in an all-American environment, and it, um, I believe my family didn't approach a church until they thought it was necessary for us to have an experience with it. So um, I. I would say I'm not spiritual in nature, and yet I'm incredibly connected to the gift of life. So I'd say non-denominational. So was church a part of your life? It was a part of my life um, from my adolescence until I left home at 17. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I had a short period of time as an anthropology major, really questioning world religions and trying on atheism and agnosticism. And, um, you know, to this day, really see myself um, as someone who enjoys the, the, the beauty and the gift of life. If that makes me spiritual, then so be it. If, right. voyagers, if voyagers and consciousness come um, you know, to me and speak and reflect onto me that I'm a spiritual teacher, so be it. I mean, what does that really mean? True, true. Uh, let me ask you this then. Okay, let's let's let's. What did you want to accomplish by writing your book? You know, I more than anything when I set out write the book, I wanted the language, state of consciousness that I, I, I did not have language for because much of it uh, happened experientially and then uh, would appear from the subtle realm into the manifest realm. I really had to find a language um, that allowed me 
and name those experiences. And I wanted to name them because I think there's so much more to what it means to be human. I, I like to sit in the question of, are we designed for more eventualities than we ever knew? You know, are we even using All our, right. capac- our capacities? Let's do this. Let's get some definitions out of the way, and then let's just get right into the meat of what you do and, and what your experiences have been. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to define for us, you know, what exactly are you referring to when you use the phrases quantum states of consciousness and transcendent dreaming? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I I believe I use transcendent in a different way. Um cosmologically. Transcendent to me is not outside of myself. Transcendent to me is an inward awareness that increasingly becomes more boundless, meaning it's limitless. And so all links and associations that are going to come in through a perceptual mode can meet that inner boundlessness. And when it does, in the body, not out of the body, in the body, it's mm-hmm. as though there is a different mathematics in the body, i.e., I prophetic states, clairvoyance, direct perception. So, in other words, when one takes in, not out, but in, these links and associations it opens up more and more of what I believe is our cellular nature which has its own quantum field so it opens up different degrees of perception but to me transcendent dreaming is what first allowed that to happen I would go to I would go to bed at night. To me, I don't know if it's an extension of lucid dreaming or if it's a subset within lucid dreaming where you awaken in a dream. And all of a sudden, I, in the dream, I become the energy behind the dream and I'm reconfiguring energetically both my external energy lines and my internal energy lines to become that energy. And I am then the experience. It's a, it's a oneness. I call that transcendent dreaming. And I, and I believe it opens up states of consciousness that one can't have from reason. Or from living, from, from only living within reason or only living within the linear realm. Meaning I think that there's something in that dream state where one loses that sense of self and merges into the energy behind the dream that it opens up a different mathematics in the body, which avails itself. Uh, okay, I, I'm, a, I'm a little lost here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you for some clarification. Because, you know, what, <laughs> what, it sounds like when you're talking about quantum consciousness, you're talking about a universe within. And, yeah. 
and, and I'm not sure how you mean to use the word mathematic in this context, but we've got a hard break coming up, so the question when we get back is what do you mean by a, math, a different mathematic? How, how, does, how does that apply to our physical lives? We're speaking with Dr. Christina Donnell about her life, work, and book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential. To learn more about Dr. Donnell, visit her website at Christina Donnell, that's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, D-O-N-N-E-L-L, ChristinaDonald.com. Okay, remember to join Ravindra and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Christina Donnell about her life, work, and book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential. We appreciate you staying with us. We had a little bit of audio difficulty in that first half hour. We think we have it cleaned up. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites. And what you were just listening to was one of our guests' favorite. Music impacts us in many ways. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Music affects our attention, memory, performance, and our choice in music has been linked to personality traits. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including musical performance, composition, education, criticism, and therapy as well as investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, and social behavior. 
As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of one's favorite music, and we love to get our guests' favorite music for that reason. Okay, we just played Fire Gathering by Liquid Bloom. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Donald? And how does it instruct us? Donnell, I guess it is. I'm sorry. How is this one special to you, Dr. Donnell? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, I, there, there are so many pieces of music that, um, th- that I deeply enjoy. What I like about a Liquid Bloom's Fire Gathering is it's a meditative state that allows the mind to really quiet and at the same time do the music. Uh, it can be, there's a felt sense of it through the body. And so what I love about it is that it wakes up the body. It wakes up the cellular nature of the body. It's hard not to listen to that particular piece of music and not have it thrumming inside of the the physical body. And that's why I chose it. Okay. Let's go back to what we were talking about before the break. How are you using the word mathematic? It's a great question. You know, I, I think um, without avoiding the, the question, what I'm trying to convey is that in this state of transcendent dreaming, where one is in union with the energy behind the dreaming, that it's, it's somewhat resistant to the usual time and place logarithm. And that's why I say it can be a different mathematic in the in the body, and therefore a different reality avails itself. And with transcendent dreaming, um, it results in awareness being able to be in more than one place at a time. You can co-create from imperceptible realms, cell realms, and you can coexist in the same space with other matter. And uh, to me, this is what it must, what must be met when people talk about a non-local mind, a non-local mind in space and a non-local mind in time. And when one experiences that state, reality unfolds differently. And so to me, I say that much, it's, it's, it's a different mathematic. It's not linear. How okay. that occurs in the body, I don't know. Okay, let's let's go back to how you were describing this universe within and this quantum mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. So, from within, I, I just want to make sure I understand this because I want to unpack some of your experiences here yeah, um, yeah. in this next hour as well using this process. And, and I think it's important that everybody understands if, if they're going to attempt to replicate what it is that you've done. So, yeah. in this inner state, you have... You, this lucid state um, that we call trans that you call transcendent dreaming, which really means turning inward, not outward. Right? I've got it right so far. And turning inward to uh, that that inner boundlessness within. Okay. So we turn inward, and inward we find a complete universe that, for all intent and purposes, gives us the ability for bilocation. Uh, isn't that what coexistent with other matter is? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So th- this is all from within. We're, we're turning our yeah. attention completely within. Yeah. 
Yes, it's uh, not an out-of-body experience. It's a very physical experience. Okay, so m now the dream itself, then, it takes place within the body? Within it, the it body. It isn't like a remote uh, viewing uh, experience. It isn't like a lucid dream. There isn't astral travel or something involved. This is all taking place from within the body. Have I got that right? You do. You do. Okay. Well, with the, the awareness. I mean, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to Well, the say. awareness, of course. But, I, I mean, when you say quantum universe, that's not just the awareness. That's actually, you're actually defining a state. Are you not? A timeless state? I am. I am. I am. And okay. I think that the, that the energy body, the subtle bodies, are reconfiguring which is inside of the body. Okay, so so this this energy body that is inside the body or coexisting mm -hmm. with the body, I'm not yep, sure inside what... Inside and out, so internal energy lines, external okay. energy lines, cellular energy, that, yes. Mm -hmm. That's what you're turning your attention to. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, tell us how you do that. I have no idea how I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I am an anomaly. I was born on the planet naturally with this ability. I don't know how I do it. I don't know why others don't do it. It it's not willed. It's not efforted. I can't make it happen. It's, they are transient states that just it simply occurs. Okay, now when you studied with shaman and sorcerers um, in in the Andes, yeah, uh, yeah, did were they able to do what you do? Did they have a way to teach that? I mean, uh, I, I guess I, I love your candidness, but how do you teach it if you don't know how you do it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I my you know I have um, three communities of what I call students who are voyagers in consciousness. And, and as, you know, as you said at the start of the show, the question I'm often asked is, is if I'm not a lucid dreamer, how do I experience these states? And one of the ways I uh, work with my students is we shift from having awareness being predominantly on form consciousness and what we shifted into is, is being anchored in space consciousness. Now, this is a very different way of walking around in the world. But for example, for myself, I have never looked at a, at a form or a category, per se. It, it's static. As soon as I'm looking at a thing, I'm really, my awareness is anchored in the, the state within it that is about ready to move. And as it hooks into that, it's really a union with it, a communion. I now feel that in my body. And at the same time, I can feel it in the corner of the room. I can feel it somewhere else. And I can, that's why I say that these are, it's transcendent. It's links and associations that all connect up. And I have this sense of something far greater than just our linear world where most people will just look at a form and wait for it to respond. So to me, that ability comes from being anchored in space consciousness and really comfortable there in the space of, of the cells of the body, in the space of the electron orbit around each photon in the body, waking it up, being fully embodied, 
and bringing awareness there. That's how I teach it. Okay, now I'm going to try and distill that and <laughs> compare it to something that... Thank you. That, I appreciate uh, that. It's a great, it's a beautiful dialogue. <laughs> My own shaman essentially is instructed that when you, and and I want to make sure I understand you correctly, so don't let me put any words in your mouth. You just stop me. When Mm -hmm. you encounter anything, a tree, a plant, a human being, you don't see it as a tree. You see its energy. You see its life force. And as you pass it, your life force, because of your awareness, exchanges with its life force. And there becomes a special secondary level of awareness that is gained from doing that. Is that something similar? Okay. (laughs) All right. So, now, when you exchange energy with another human being, psychics tell us that... um, You'll often pick up information in that process that we think of as being precognitive, clairvoyant. We have all kinds of ESP labels, too. Is that your experience? Yes. There seems to be direct perception. You just simply know. And for myself, often it's a prophetic unfolding, meaning I'm, which means a piece of my awareness is not in linear time. Okay, now, there's a dark side possibility here. And, you know, the Aleister Crowleys of the world, they have perhaps experimented with that. Um, You can control people to some extent because of that. Have you also experienced this? I long ago, and and I've always said as people begin to have quantum states of awareness, non-local states of awareness, everyone has to make a decision how to be in relationship to that. I long ago said if someone uh, doesn't, is unaware, then it's not for me to bring it forward. So to me, it's a tremendous gift of life to be a part of life and to have that energy available and to come through me but it's not mine, and it's not for me to do anything with. Now, well, is it influencing an outcome? Who knows? You know, in quantum physics, we would say perception alone won't influence it. But you know what? I've had hundreds of prophetic experiences, some of which are the details are to the T, others which end up they're, they're different, and the outcome is close but not the same, and others that really play out more metaphoric. So, to me, it isn't just because we are blessed with that awareness. It doesn't mean we need to do anything with it. It's already doing. Do you warn your students or teach your students about avoiding that, uh, you know, the opportunity that's in their hands to manipulate the minds of other people? We have dialogues around the notion of doerless doing, non-doing. Okay, but that's and not what I'm... and and the, to to me, you know, I 
I understand that, you know, others are always concerned about a dark side, but the exquisite beauty of this state is that you can't do or effort or will in it because as soon as you do, you are, you are no longer the experience. You are the observer of the experience, and it shuts down. So to me, it's a gift of consciousness that's just simply coming through our human being. It isn't about doing anything with it. The action does itself, whatever okay. that action is going to be. Let's let's talk a little bit about some specifics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have a dream, and I believe the dream was about your uncle or your grandfather. And um, it was it, it, around an automobile accident. Yes, that was my father. Share, mm -hmm. share, that, uh, share that dream with us, please. Share your experience, and then I'll have a question or two about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and let's see, the early 90s. At that time, I was the director of an anxiety disorders clinic at a medical center here. And I had a dream before uh, going to work where I saw my father in a one a single car automobile accident. And um, I the, the entire dream showed me his preparation, including that he, he took the third family car, he took all the grandchildren's toys out of it, he went down to a local store, he bought himself a Mountain Dew. I recall... Uh, you know, him saying goodbye to the store owner, driving into town, going off on a country road, and long story short, accelerating, uh, going off the road, hitting a very large oak tree, and, um, and being killed. And my father had ALS, and he had only probably about four to six months left to live. And I remember at the time of the dream thinking, Oh, you know, I'm a psychologist, but yes, I'm, this is just part of preparation for my dad's death. And when I arrived at work that morning, uh, somebody came in and um, informed me that my father had uh, been killed in that automobile accident. And when I actually went to southern Michigan and was with my family, all the details of the dream were per were perfectly part of his last moment, including in the dream he pulled out a picture of the family, kissed it, put it back in his wallet, and, you know, when someone dies and you get their belongings, that picture came out of the wallet. So it was at, it was at that time that I really began to, to understand okay, whatever this is that I have um, is, is very different. And it says that consciousness can be in uh, two places at once. And I had a moment in that dream where my, when my dad died that I merged into an ecstatic union with his consciousness. So I knew that my own consciousness could merge and be in a communion with another. Those are two states of consciousness that, you know, obviously are not normal. It's rather common with transcendent dreaming. And it's 
and it's rather common um, in what I call awake dreaming now. I, I call it having a, an awareness that is anchored in space consciousness. Okay, I, I don't want to be insensitive, but many people uh, involved in your family thought or questioned whether or not this wasn't an act of suicide. It, when, you know what? Yes, yes. When you merged with your father, it, you would have shared that consciousness. Uh, did you learn? Did you know if this was an act of suicide? To to this to me. I say absolutely this was an act of suicide, but in my family that remains split, what people yeah. think. I right. feel that given what I witnessed, it was clearly was a suicide. Was there sadness that accompanied this? or When you merged with your father, I mean, what was that experience like? It was ecstatic, which... I, I understand is not what one would think you would experience. And, you know, I can make meaning around it. I can say, well, maybe I was on some, my awareness was touching some level of the astral that would allow it to be ecstatic. Yeah. All right. This dream, in your view, this took place within you. I mean, that's the part that I, I want to really make clear of. This is not you. You didn't. You didn't experience it like it was an out-of-body experience. You experienced it totally within you. It all took place within you. You know, uh, yes, and why I say in me is because every. It's feels as though this, this cellular nature of the body is streaming and thrumming. But l let me use another dream that I think may get to this question that you're asking. Okay, please. Please do. You know, I, I believe there's another dream in that uh, in the book where I witness, and again, I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know if we really call this prophetic. I witnessed a man and a woman on a motorcycle get into an automobile accident, and as I, and so I'm, I'm awake in a dream, watching the motorcycle, knowing that uh, it's going to hit the fender of the car and uh, catapult, and just as it catapults, the dream slows down. I enter some sort of, like, in my entire physical body, some reconfiguration of where I become a set of hands. I am, I am literally the experience of set of hands, and I am holding the woman's head as she's catapulting off of the motorcycle. Um, it's completely slowed down. I'm completely in my body. I am the hand. There's only the, the awake part of me watching the dream, but I, and my awareness is the hands. And the hands remain under her head until they hit the, she hits the pavement. And when the emergency vehicles begin to come, and I hear that in the dream, I dissolve as a set of hands, and I'm back into 
the experience of, of witnessing. And as I said in the book, five years later, someone, a colleague, wanted to refer someone to me who was, who was speaking spiritually because they had had an unusual experience. And that unusual experience was that they felt like they had had a spirit guide um, with them when they were in a motorcycle accident because a set of hands stayed with her until the emergency vehicles came on the scene. So what is that? You know, it's these states of consciousness. What do we call them? And what are we doing as human beings? How are we? What are those connections? Do you feel impact at all, uh, Dr. Donnell? I mean, did your hands feel impact, or when you were in the automobile with your with your father, did you feel that you know catapulting force throwing you forward? Do you, I mean, what does this feel like to you? Yes, I, I um, you know, unlike remote viewing, where I believe um, it has that impersonal quality to it. For me, over the years of transcendent dreaming, the, the work has been in letting all of those emotions wash through because they're very lucid. That your, your heart space is completely available in those moments. And that has been an exercise in and of itself for two decades. I would imagine. I would. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, what it would be like to experience that, uh, to experience their consciousness, to experience their fear, to. Ex- I mean, to experience uh, it all. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and to learn how to be, you know, a, a vessel for experience rather than an accumulation of that experience. We'll talk about that when we come back. We have another break. So, if you would like to know more about Dr. Christina Donnell and her book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential, check out her website at ChristinaDonnell, D-O-N-N-E-L-L, dot com. Now, we have a video for you during the break of Dr. Donnell discussing consciousness. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Christina Donnell about her book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential. All right, Dr. Donnell, we just played your second musical choice, Sundiamond. So please tell us, why is this one special to you? You know, it's, um, to me, it speaks directly to my heart in terms of, and an epic of time. Um, as you know, I've spent almost 25 years back and forth in the high Andes, and um, there's just something about the peace that really speaks to me about kind of the plight of a third world country trying to become developed, um, watching a country that is predominantly indigenous. Uh, make some of the same mistakes that we've made here in America and um, and really trying to to better themselves while extinctions are occurring uh, and so I, just, I feel that in the music and uh, and it's a beloved song to Peruvians and, and so uh, it stays in my heart it's, just, it's a heartful song for me when you say extinctions, Dr. Danilo, are you talking about uh, the preservation of a culture, or are you talking about literally extinctions of indigenous people? Uh, um, uh, preservations of cultures, you know, um, and, and there's, so, there's so many different uh, uh, native traditions there. But I'm speaking, you know, particularly of the Carol Indians, of whom I've worked with for for many, many years, and uh, and as as they're culture they as they go through a cultural death um, that was that's actually prophesized in part of the oral tradition from, yeah. from the Incan time for them so and it is indeed happening and you know I've borne witness to that over 25 years and really been um, uh, very close to it of, of witnessing how that occurs you know, how those, how those changes occur. All right. Before the break, we were talking about special states of consciousness, you know, prophecy, Mm -hmm. clairvoyance, uh, stepping Mm -hmm. out of time. One of the things that you address in your book is materialization. 
Now, I have a friend, a Canadian psychologist, who accompanied uh, a team, made a film years ago in South America, and he swears uh, by the authenticity of this footage. I've, I've seen uh, people materialize gemstones out of their eyes and, and do things of that nature, but even though I've seen it, and even though I know Lee Pulos, there's a part of me that says, you know, I don't know that I can accept that. Have you ever materialized anything? <laughs> I've never materialized anything other than that my body can appear to be in uh, two places at once. And and I can feel the reconfiguration of that happening. However, it's the dematerializing that uh, I think is hard for our consciousness to accept. And I know for myself... Um, I have in the cellular nature of my body a, a complete trauma associated to when the cells feel as though they're dissolving. I can feel my body start to go into it, and I stop the experience. So I, it's hard for me to say I don't believe in it because my body wants to have experiences like this. Have I seen it? Uh, what do I think about it? I don't really have much thought about it other than it feels as though the body does know how to do it. All right. So I guess I will retain my cautious... Uh, <laughs> I can't you know, help whatever. you, Alden. I have okay. the same cautious... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speak to us about prophecy. There are all sorts of prophecies out there today. You know, they have to do with doom and gloom, Armageddon, end times, the so-called eschatological stuff that we're going to deal with. All right, you have experienced prophecy. You have experienced, according to your book, this ineffable one with the one that Plotinus talks about. You've actually merged into the oneness. Um, is there any place for these prophecies other than how you can sell a book or make some money? Um, prophecy. You know, I've only experienced prophecy in in working with a carol and that it being an oral tradition and being handed down. And and in the nineties, when it was handed down and translated really witnessing the unfolding of it. I don't, you know, I don't spend much time, honestly, Eldon, uh, making meaning around things. I, I don't live there. Uh, it's uninteresting to me. Uh, it, it, it takes the motion and the beauty that is behind everything and makes it static. And that, for me, is like eating cardboard or styrofoam. So I don't, to me... Is what is prophecy uh, prophetic and then handed down? I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know. No, I, I mean, guess that's like, my real question is, you know, in, in your experience, um, this world that we live in. Yeah. Is it about to end in some judgment day? Uh, is Moroni going to blow his trumpet? I mean, that's what I'm asking you. Oh, oh, I get you now. Yes, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? I don't care. 
I'm here until I'm not here, you know? And, and to me, honestly, there's so much possible in every moment, in, in every instant moment, when, especially when you taste nonlinear links and associations that are influencing one another. There's so much that is possible, but it's so beyond the mind. If any conjecture um, disinterests me, I'm here, I'm very present, and I'm in the moment. And okay. whether we're in a degraded time or, a, you know, a, a, a time where the old streams are moving out, the new ones haven't emerged yet, None of the language around that matters to me. It's and yet, it's, a, it's the felt sense in the moment of being really dimensionally present in every moment. That's to me that all that matters. Okay. Do so I feel this have... is doomsday? Do I feel this is doomsday? No, no, I don't. I'm glad I don't. I would not want to walk around with that cognitive framework. That makes sense. Although it's but, probably important that we have people who do, you know? Yeah. So, In your book, however, you talk about prophecy. Now, just kind of flesh out for me what you mean by prophetic visions, then. Are you talking about precognitive uh, sorts yes, of dreams yes, as with I your am. father? Yes, so, I am. So we're not looking at prophets of the Bible, prophets of old. We're looking at precognitive sorts of events. Yes, yes. Okay. And, yes. and your precognitive events don't include Armageddon, right? They don't. On occasion, I'll have precognitive events of earthquakes you know, prior to them happening, but they do not include Armageddon. Good. Now, are, I mean, there have been a lot of, uh, Jane Dixon comes to mind when you talk about earthquakes, and she served uh, Nancy Reagan when uh, President Reagan was in the White House, and she did a lot of this every year. Here was a prophecy, this earthquake, and the West Coast was going to fall into the ocean, and so on and so forth. Do you ever do that sort of thing, uh, Dr. Dunnell? I don't. I don't. And, and, and let, me, let me share a story with you, which is why Please. I choose to, um, to move in the world in this manner. And, and again, I, I think I, I placed this in Transcendent Dreaming. I had a uh, prophetic dream in which I witnessed a client of mine, a long-time client of mine, being murdered in an alley by a boyfriend. And I was seeing her actively. And up until that time, I always said, um, I'd taken a stance of non-doing. But in that particular case, I knew that the man that she was with was was dangerous to her. She had a restraining order. and uh, And so I called her. And I decided to share the dream with her. And as a result of sharing the dream with her, she, uh, matter of fact, when I called her, she was in Chicago, which is where I saw the event happen. I, I saw it in an alley in Chicago. I 
did my graduate work in Chicago, so I, I know Chicago well. And uh, the fact that she said she was in Chicago said to me, yeah, this prophetic is, uh, is likely to occur. I told her, and it, it did, uh, she shifted her plan such that it didn't happen. But here's where it gave it gives me pause and why I, I move in, in this way now. She came back to me. I, I don't remember. I mean, this is about a decade ago, like a year or two later. And when I saw her, she was emaciated. She had a palsy in her face. She had tracks up and down her arm. She had been a professional, but had gotten into heroin and had been beaten by a pimp because she was prostituting for her heroin addiction. And it's the last time I saw her. This was a professional woman who I had seen for many years. So what it what gave me pause was in sharing the prophetic dream with her did that have influence on the event? Would she have been killed in that alley? Would she have shifted that relationship with that boyfriend? By not being killed, what kind of suffering and pain happened over the next year and a half for that level of deterioration? And uh, it was a very poignant teaching moment for me in, um, in just being the witness of however that consciousness is going to stream through me and allow life to unfold in the way it does, you know, daily for people. So I I rarely share anything. I feel no need to share anything. I feel completely connected to to people and feel no need to share. And, And one has to learn how to move in the world that way. That's, so part of ha- that's part of having an awareness that is outside of linear time. You have to learn how to live in linear time, you know, which is so, the mother language of the culture. So if you were to have a dream and there was a sinkhole in the backyard of your your you know loved one's home, you know, heaven forbid, let's say, you know, you're, you know, whatever. A loved one. We'll just leave it at that. Yep. Yep. And this sinkhole collapsed and pulled in the home and killed everybody, all the occupants. You would not feel a moral responsibility to contact them and warn them about that in advance? Nope. Wow. No. You know what, what Alvin? I know, I know of a, a husband and wife who had, uh, uh, the wife had a prophetic awareness of their son being killed in a motorcycle accident, and a number of us had a, a consultation dialogue over that, how how they wanted to be with that prophetic awareness. And for whatever reason, they both agreed to just let it be, and he did indeed die. These are very difficult questions, and, th- and he was their son. They're very difficult questions. So if you, uh, and, I, and I'm going to pursue this just for a moment, please forgive me, but if, no, you, yes, please. 
if you had this prophetic dream of, um, let's say, the Boston bomber, you would not feel any compulsion whatsoever to avert that tragedy for everyone involved? No. This is the reason why. Because anytime I have a prophetic awareness, it can unfold to the to the detail. It can unfold with a different ending. It can unfold, uh, usually it's a different ending. Well, I'll tell right. you, for... From my perspective, if if that were the instance, I would consider it prophetic dreams to be a plague. I mean, that must be really, really difficult for you to live with when you have all this information, but you are not empowered to do anything with it. Well, you're assuming that that power is doing. You're not. You're not looking at that the being and the catalyst or the generator or the possibility of something to unfold definitely is coming through you, and it's not even yours. Well, I, I guess we, you, we no, you are right. You, you are right. I'm, I, I guess I'm thinking, you know, prophetic. Uh, if we go to the, you know, the literature, the history, and let's just jump, you know, uh, into the Bible. Prophecy there was to prevent famine, as a case in point. The dreams uh, that David had for, or, or it was Joseph, it wasn't, uh, that he had were all about saving lives. And that's how he used it. And so I guess I am contrasting your interpretation with that kind of a contrast. Uh, and so you're right. I am looking at it. Maybe, according to you, I'm looking at it wrong uh, or, or with the wrong perspective. So please, you know, flesh out the opposite perspective. Share with us why that isn't a burden to you yeah. to have this yeah. information and, and not be able to share it. You know, I, I don't see it as a wrong perspective. I see it as a perspective that comes out of linear thinking. And a perspective that doing and saving is important. But I, I don't have a fear of, of death. I, death is, is the silent sharer of every moment. And I, believe, I, I don't have the definition of prophecy in front of me, and I'm not familiar with the Bible, but I think of prophecy as, um, in some ways, being divinely informed by something larger than oneself. But that doesn't mean you have to do anything with that. It means that a greater consciousness is coming through the vessel. You can, everyone has to decide how to be in relationship to that. And I would say there is no wrong answer. Wow. Okay, let's let's move on. A late friend of mine um, was an Episcopal priest until one evening that changed his life forever. He became a self-declared shaman, and very many credible witnesses saw him do some pretty spectacular things, like mm-hmm. halt a wildfire, command natural elements, communicate with animals, and so forth. Do you do any of this, or did you acquire any of this skill when you were studying with shamans in Peru? <laughs> I mean, this. Uh, well, yeah, what is this? I mean, for me, 
Yes, because to me, there are different ways of of holding power in our world. And I would suspect your your late friend um, learned the, what it's like to have dominion with all of nature versus over nature. Mm-hmm. And when one learns to work with the energy behind nature, one can have influence. So it, in part of my training, it, it's part, part of how you know your where you stand is by your ability to call in the lightning strikes or to call in the rain and in ceremony and it's considered a beloved invitation it's not it's not done from a place of there's a drought and I want to change things it's done as a, as a true communion with these greater forces and the understanding of how to move with them and I do believe that shamanic communities, because of their beloved nature with the earth, have these and have better understandings about dominion with. So, is this something you yourself have done, Doctor Donald? Yeah. Have you called in the lightning? Yes. Yeah. Although it's easier for me to call in the rain than the lightning. I, I have a I have a, um, a pipe that was carved on over 18 months by a Lakota medicine man that uh, was carved on full moons and lightning storms. And so anytime I sit in ceremony uh, with it, it will call in the rain. It just does. It just does. That's that's incredible. What does it feel like when you do that? I mean, uh, it's beloved. It's beloved. It's 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 to me. It gives a human being a felt sense of the larger rhythms of which we are embedded and how to be in relation with them and to taste that union. And, and to me, we live in such a disconnected world right now that we can't get enough of, of teaching that greater connection. You know, it, Amen. It, we have it a heartbreak coming up here. I, I assume you teach your students this. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about that. Yes, we're yes. glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldentaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. In our next half hour, we will take your phone calls or your comments, so be sure that you join the chat room during the break. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Christina Donnell about her book, Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping into Our Human Potential. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so again, I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Donnell, we just played your third musical choice, so, you know, tell us, why is this one important to you, and again, how does it inform us about who you are? And I think that piece of music is is an opportunity to witness genius. You know, it comes out of the Sufi tradition, it's the koal singing. So you just have this exquisite instrument as voice with a background of very complex rhythms. And then the poetry, you know, in the language with those rhythms. And uh, I always appreciate any piece of music where there there is genius demonstrated. And I, I can feel it in that piece of music. Do you understand the language? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need okay. to. I can feel it. <laughs> You feel it. All right. Well, you know, one of the things that we like to do is catch folks on their lyrics, you know, but you give us three pieces of music and there are no lyrics. You, I know, because uh, I like them in the body, you know. I, I like quiet. Yeah, or you're coy. I haven't figured that one out yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a joke. That was said, that was said with levity. I'm Listen, smiling. You can't see me, but I'm smiling. <laughs> okay. The uh, before the break, I, you know, I suggested that you probably teach some of these shamanistic arts to your students. Is that true or false? It's true. I do. I, I've taught uh, many uh, training programs. So, if one were to visit your website, they'd learn more about uh, what your courses are, the dreaming aspect, as well as the shamanic practices. How yes. often do you take people out? And I assume when you teach them shamanism, you actually take them into the fields so that they can work with nature. Is that true or false? That is true. And um, for many years, I I did uh, pilgrimages and expeditions to the high Andes, you know, taking students up to meet the Carol. The Carol actually lives between eighteen and twenty-two thousand feet elevation, so. Um, you know, base camp for Mount Aspis is 14,000. Mm-hmm. So to bring students even up to 14,000 feet, where the Carol come down and meet us, um, is is quite a feat. Uh, I do that less and less now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm shifting uh, from... I'm, I'm just coming to a close in terms of teaching shamanism. I'm finishing up my last three-year training program, of which I've been doing them, you know, doubled up for about 20 years. So. It's, it's quite a switch from, uh, you know, dealing with uh, anxiety and stress disorders as a licensed clinical psychologist to uh, teaching shamanism. And then I'm sure that uh, your credibility has been questioned more than once by... Uh, uh, what we would consider to be our peers. How do you deal with that? Hmm. You know, 
interestingly, uh, you know, I've had people read Transcendent Dreaming, and when they meet me, you know, they laugh and say, oh, my God, you're so sane. You know, <laughs> this, this makes you sound bipolar, or this makes you, you know. And so I really feel that when I am, uh, in whether I'm doing a, a book talk or a le- public lecture or um, a lyrical prose talk, that once people meet me, um, I'm really down to earth and very real, and I, and I'm really about love. So I don't get that that questioning directly to my face. And uh, quite honestly, I always say I'll be whatever you need me to be. If, you know, if I applied the rub to the tenderloin, and you know. And it's irritated you, so be it. That's our divine exchange. Sure. But, I mean, certainly someone has asked you about things like bilocation and dematerialization and, and been skeptical about it. So how do you handle that? I say, good for you. I, I, I remain skeptical about it, but I can only talk about the experiences that I've had and share them as another human being on the planet. You know, I can't make sense of them. I don't need to do anything with them. And that's why I'm here. I, and I love it. You know, you're basically, here I am, take it or leave it. I'll t- tell you what I experience, and you do with it as you please. Yes, yes. It's pretty hard to fault that. Okay, listen. There's a lot of conversation nowadays about the web of life, you know. We're all connected on one spaceship, the planet Earth. Uh, further, the Earth itself is a living agent. The Gaia hypothesis confirmed, and, and and you you have experienced this oneness with everything in your practice. Mm-hmm. In theory, this is beautiful. As I read, as I understand, as I listen to you, your words are static, and you know. But in the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as we say on this show. We yes. see a stallion kill a seven-day-old foal in order to breed its mother during foal heat. We see coyotes pull down a flock of sheep, killing with such abandonment that it's obvious the only thing in their mind is the thrill of the kill, not the food. You know, we see animal after animal tortured by another animal for play and game. It's an avarice world full of power games at all levels, and this says nothing about the capacities for cruelty that exist in man. So, how does this fit into the oneness of it all? Isn't it part of the oneness? It wouldn't be on the planet. Whatever we want to call the manifestations and creation, it wouldn't be here if it were not supposed to be here. That, that's how I deal with it. I, I don't like any more than anyone else egregious and abhorrent violence. And yet, violence has been a part of humanity, you know, from the beginning. And from a biological perspective, truly, we still are carrying our animal brain and animal body. So to me, egregious and abhorrent act by humans, by other animals, is the nature of manifestation and creation. And it's as much, this is hard to swallow, but it has as much value 
as all the other things that we want to gravitate towards, the light, the love, the it's of equal value. It wouldn't be to me it wouldn't be here otherwise. You know, Sigmund Freud, and of course you studied Freud, uh, would say, you know, that, that that's a form of fantasy formation, and uh, you know, it makes us feel good, uh, but it's really a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. If we're unable to, you know, find a heaven that's representative of the life that we live, it's purely an escape mechanism. What do you say to that, Dr. Donnell? I think human beings, with where to con- wherever anyone's consciousness resides, create they, they create a, a form in order to move in the world. You know, so if it needs to be a heaven, so be it. You know, it, it, whatever mythology it becomes, so be it. You know, for my own, I'm very comfortable with that which I don't know I don't know and just really allowing myself not to know that is a mythology too they're all of equal value to me one isn't greater than another and 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 people have the freedom to choose perhaps not everywhere in the world but it does give rise to so many of the arguments that have to do with the problem of evil, you know. Um, and many people today need to believe that there is some reckoning that will greet evil on the other side, some way that punishes evil deeds, those perpetrators beheading, you know, uh, Christians today as a case in point. Uh, based on your experience, is this so? Is you know, there some? Go ahead. Yeah, I. The um, the the Caro, um, the Caro Indians. You know what is unique about them is that they don't live in linear time, and they also have no uh, notion of a self. There is no I for them. It's always a we. Uh, they, they, so they never talk about a past. They never talk about a future. Uh, they're constantly in a multidimensional present moment. And what one of the things they say, you know, if you ask them a question about evil in the world, they'll say evil doesn't exist in the heart of man. Evil is a result of living in a distorted relationship to time. And that linear time has caused this notion of evil in which we are living out because we're, the past is always spilling into the present and painting the present moment. And I often settle out there uh, when when asked this question. I don't know that to be more true than than the evil does exist in the hearts of men and women. Uh, but, But I also know that linear time as a construct of reality sets up a lot of how we're moving in the fishbowl. And, then, and therefore our viewpoint. And so I, I tend to look at it more from that angle. I, I suppose that the problem that I have personally with that position is it places a human agency, your life, my life, everyone listening to this show, 
now and forever into the future, in a place where we have no responsibility. It's not our responsibility to look out for our neighbor or our loved ones. It's, you know, it, it, if if what you're saying were to be the case, then when some atrocity takes place in the world, when that when that 14 year old girl is sold by her father to to an older man as a bride, and she fails to to please him, so he cuts her ears and her nose off and discards her to the stable. Well, we should just ignore that kind of thing. And and therein is my problem. I I I tend to believe, and I'm going to ask you to correct me to give me the right sight here. But I have tended to believe um, that we have a responsibility to one another, and that part of that responsibility is to promote the the welfare of each other, and that to turn our backs on someone in need is to decline the very reason we're here, uh, to invalidate uh, our purpose. Uh, so please, you know, sort that I, out for me. Set me straight. Well, I, I, I share that same viewpoint. So, um, so, so help me out here. I'm not sure what the, what the question is. I mean, I believe in every, every moment that that you're in a in a beloved exchange and but and if you believe that and sometimes it's it can be with something really horrific it can be something absolutely horrific so what well i guess you know forgive me but that sounds like hillary clinton so what? Uh, my problem is, if it could have been stopped, and we had the ability to stop it, I feel that we're compelled to act accordingly. But that's just me. Hey, listen, I, you know... I was in law enforcement maybe too many years. Let's move on. We have questions out of the chat room, and I've been ignoring them, and so I'm going to jump into the chat room and send you one or two of those, okay? Beautiful. Mark in the chat room says, What school of psychology does Christina embrace? I'm sorry, what school of psychology? What school of psychology? That's the question, yeah. Wow, I rarely think of myself as a psychologist any longer. So, mm. <laughs> well, maybe this is a young budding, you know. Um, I know, I know. Okay, I know. so I'm, I thought, so, you know, I I'm, I may say uh, perhaps transpersonal. I'd say that fits transpersonal psychology without a doubt. All right, another question. How do you measure the credibility of your experiences rather than dismiss them as fanciful? I think having had so many of them actually materialize made me move beyond saying, oh, that was just a dream. I had to pay attention to the 
the experiences that I was having and in the reconfigurations in my energy were, were something real and that, that things were materializing and manifesting. So I have direct evidence. And uh, you can't ignore that. Yeah, there comes a point when it accumulates to where coincidence doesn't fit any longer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think your book does a great job at, at fleshing that out uh, it, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, experience that you write about Dr. Donald okay <clears throat> I'm going to pick up from the question uh, well actually from your answer you don't see yourself as a psychologist what do you see yourself as <laughs> Do you have an occupation or what? Oh, you know, honestly, sometimes I just see myself as a curator of living art. <laughs> Unpack that for us. What do you mean, a curator of living art? Are you the I, living art? No, I'm the curator. I'm the farmer. I'm the sowing of the seeds in every moment of that which is living. I don't care what it is. That's where I hang out. That's beautiful to me. I, I don't hang out much in uh, in thought or in making meaning. Uh, it's not the way I move best in the world. So I can certainly do that. Uh, uh, I still keep a consultation practice, and I'll work within anyone else's framework to help uh, help them discover that which is unseen and wanting uh, to avail itself. And so to me, I do. I, I feel as though I'm a farmer. I'm, I'm a curator of that which is living, that which is unseen and wanting to come into the visible realm. That's what I do. Cool. So I don't know what to call that. We're in the <laughs> 21st century, and I live in urban Minneapolis. So Curator's good. I'll accept curator. Thank All you. All right. <laughs> In the beginning, I told you that we want to know three things. You know, who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? Well, I think we've got the message and we know a little bit about the messenger. How do we use this information, Dr. Donald, to improve our lives? Danelle, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, again, I come back to the metaphors of farming and sowing seeds in, in fertile fields. And to me, transcendent writing the book Transcendent Dreaming and writing the, my next book is really about bringing to our everyday awareness that there are other states of consciousness that, uh, that human beings are living in daily. And to expose those. Sometimes I call them, you know, I, as I said earlier, I, I feel as though I'm a prototype of consciousness. I honestly think we have uh, other prototypes of consciousness coming onto the planet right now, like the, like the entire Asperger's syndrome, of which are not adaptively functioning right now. You know, I feel the, the, for, the great fortune and grace of being very adaptive in our culture. Uh, but I'm I'm here to sow those seeds of what's possible, what's a latent capacity uh, in what it means to be human. That's 
Okay. I think that's an important, that's it. In 30 seconds, maybe 45, tell everybody how they can learn more about you, where they can get your book, or perhaps participate in some of your seminars and teachings. You know, the, probably the best thing to do is, is to go on to our website. And, um, <laughs> and Alden, forgive me, I don't know my website. <laughs> 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 You don't know your website. Well, I'll give you the plug for that. Just go to ChristinaDanell.com or something like that. I don't know. There you go. You got it. That's the best thing to do? And your book is available everywhere, is it not? Amazon is probably the best place, or you can even order it off of our website. Okay. And uh, it is a very interesting read. The book again. Transcendent Dreaming, Stepping Into Our Human Potential. Well, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Donald, for your willingness to share with us as candidly as you have your experiences. Um, I, I, I know that that requires a, a level of uh, integrity that uh, can be hard to come by today. So once again, thank you. We've come to the end of another hour, another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on the show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, always remember, believing in yourself matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.